Welcome back to the Effort Over Everything podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kleep, and on today's episode, we have Dr. Sean Pastuch on the show. Now, he's the founder of Active Life. I've known of him for a really long time, but we get to sit down for quite a while today to discuss what is his company, what do they do, how are they bridging the gap between fitness and healthcare, and what's the difference between a coach and a doctor. I really enjoyed this conversation. Sean had a lot of insight, not only into human movement, but also on the business side of things. As he is a former gym owner himself, he then learned about partnerships. He then got into the event space. I found it really valuable, the entrepreneurial skill set that he shared, lessons learned, and then the impact that he's making currently on trainers and coaches globally. If you like this episode, let us know. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. It helps us out and it lets us know what type of shows you're looking for in the future. Now let's dive into an incredible episode with Dr. Sean Pastuch. Let's go. So Sean, Sean, we are officially in the sauna right now. You're the first person that's ever told me that. I have different backgrounds I pull up when doing podcasts, and this is actually the front desk of one of our locations. But now that you mention it, it surely does look like a sauna. So for those of you watching this on video, you're seeing what we're talking about. If not, it's just a bunch of wood, right? Well, anyways, thanks for bringing that up to my attention. Won't be using this background again. No, I like it. I, I, now that I'm seeing, I see the computer between our two images. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, we're in the sauna, and I feel like I should just throw a towel on. Hey, dude, we're, I'm getting a new sauna here pretty soon, so I'm, I, uh, I do want to talk to you about some of those type of things. Do you, do you, um, do you do cold exposure? Do you do sauna exposure? Do you do either of those? I do cold. Uh, not, not like I'm not, I'm not Wim Hof or anything. I, I run. I'm known to run around my town with my shoes and shirt off in the winter. Um. And it's like, it can get to 20 degrees. So that's cold. Jump in the ocean from time to time, cold showers. The plan is to put a barrel sauna in the yard, but we spent much more money than we were planning to renovate our house this year. So that's going to take a, that's going to take a backseat. Oh man. All right. I got it. I have one um, coming in pretty soon. I'll have to let you know how it goes, but I have a barrel sauna coming back in. I, I had one for a while, loved it. Um, I then moved, I donated it and now I'm getting a new one, but um the cold exposure is getting a lot of uh, momentum right now. I wonder, before we dive into active life and your background and everything that's going on, I, I want to ask, there, there's like this uh, uh, hacking concept, right? Of like, oh, we're doing this. We're doing blood flow restriction. There's there, there's so many different tools out there right now. Um, are you dabbling with any tools for yourself and your training and how you feel right now that is kind of something you hadn't expected 10 years ago? No. Anything in particular? No, uh, caring about it less, you know, just, just, just having more fun when I do it and, 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 you know, having a very simple goal, my, my goal right now, I feel really good. And my goal is just to have a healthy habit that I say yes to when I'm supposed to, you know, that that's it. And in the past, it's been, how much can I clean? How much can I snatch? How fast is my mile? How much can I deadlift? I don't care about that at all anymore. And I think I'm less fit by the measure of how, you know, most people probably measure fitness and I'm happier, I'm healthier, I'm more sustainable than I ever was before. What I can, what I can say is the reason I do the cold exposure stuff is not for any kind of a biohacking. It's because it's an easy way to introduce stress 
in a controlled environment and learn how to take a deep breath and understand that the way I respond to that stress is a choice. And then when in life I get hit with the same kind of stress, I've, I've felt that before. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons why, um, I have a new cold plunge coming and that's one of the reasons why I want to get it. I also want to get it for the, for the kids, um, to help them within, you know, I'm not going to make it super, super cold. I actually have the ability to adjust it on this one just to help them learn how to overcome that as well. I think there's a lot of benefit from that. So, um, very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's go back in time. Um, look, I, I, I've, I've known of you for a while. Um, I've seen active life pop up, um, in a variety of different ways and how, like where, talk to me about how active life was started and your background, because you went to school, you opened a gym and it kind of transformed into what is active life today. So I kind of want to back up and see how did you get into, you know, your current profession and then how did that navigate into basically the gyms and then how did that then catapult into helping other gym owners? So, you know, way back, man, I mean, we don't have to go back until you're five, but you know, earlier in the days, the, the better just kind of lay some framework for sure. I've done enough of uh, this conversation that I'm able to to make it short enough and meaningful enough that people understand what's going on. Got it. Let's do um, it. How, first of all, how do I change my Sean on the screen to at Dr. Sean Pestuch like yours? That's that's yours is way cooler than mine. Uh, you know what? We might have to. I don't. You might have to, have to click on it right. and uh, and hit at. Yeah, <laughs> it's not happening. We'll, we'll we'll get into we'll get into what you asked me. Um, my background was I, I grew up well off. My fa my family was great. I have nothing to complain about from my childhood. I had great mentors. My mother and my father were amazing. My father was a chiropractor ah, and, okay. and, and, you know, the last thing that you want to do, at least the last thing that I wanted to do as a kind of a, a bit of a rugged individualist myself was do exactly what my dad did and just, you know, have the life that was effectively set up for me. So I graduated uh, medical, uh, University of Maryland became a personal trainer and I was working at the worst gym you could find Jason. Like it was like, it was how bad is that? Cause I've been in some bad gyms. This was worse. I sold. <laughs> I, so the, I'll give you some, this is <laughs> worse. I, I was, I was wearing one of those, like uh, one of those shirts that you can, you can feel how uncomfortable it was. It was like the old oh, like baseball the jersey. cotton, like really no, crappy one, like an old baseball uniform. Okay. Oh yeah. Really yeah. bad. Um, the office that the owner of the gym worked in had two way mirrors. So he could have sex with members in his office. And if his wife was coming, he could see her. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, that was one. Yeah. I, I sold a bag of steroids from behind the front desk without even knowing it because the guy came in he's like, Hey, I'm here to buy a gym bag. I'm like, we don't sell gym bags. And he's like, yeah, you do. Joe told me there'll be a gym bag for me at the front desk. And I was like, Oh, there is a gym bag down here. And I picked it up and I'm like, here you go. And he's like, yeah, here, exact change. I don't need anything. Yeah. I'm like 700 something dollars like that. That's an expensive, that's an expensive bag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was that, you know, but what I will say is I was there on purpose. I, I knew I wasn't any good and I didn't want to be found. So I was learning there. I learned how to, you know, restring selectorize machines. I learned how to clean the mirrors with a piece of newspaper and Windex instead of a towel. So it doesn't leave residue. I learned how to train a personal training session. There was value to it. But I, I left that place when I sold the bag of steroids. I didn't feel comfortable doing that anymore. 
uh, got a job working as a personal trainer at Equinox where I really learned the other side of the business. That's, that's where I learned, oh, there's, there's a legitimate thought process to setting up a high-end training business. Found that I was stunted in my ability to grow there. And so I set off to uh, follow in dad's footsteps. Going to save the world as a chiropractor. You know, I was tired of physical therapy, uh, the physical therapy office in the gym telling me to help my clients work around it. I was mm-hmm. like, this is, this sucks. So, so you come out of college and then you go directly. Now at the time, were you working when you're also in college or did you just start at the gym after college? My last semester, senior year, I was training people at the rec center the, right. the, at University of Maryland. And then I got certified after I graduated and then I got the jobs in the gyms. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so then boom, you, you come back, you, you get, you get just when they think you could get out, they pull you right back in and now you're in the chiropractic. Huh? You know what it was? I was, I was, by all means, I I was, I was crushing at Equinox. I was doing 35, you know, 30 to 35 sessions a week. And, and for personal training, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, And they, and they offered me a management position and I didn't, I didn't want it. So I went to chiropractic school because I, I feel, all right, I'm going to help people in a more meaningful way. I'm going to do this. And that, I found that that was just a different false peak. There was a different issue there. You know, by the end of my career, I had left my father's clinic. I was running my own CrossFit gym, my own clinic. I had um, CrossFit Games athletes flying out to my office for evaluation, for treatment, for program design from a distance. Everyone from, you know, a Rich Froning and a Samantha Briggs to people that no one's ever heard of who were flying out from other countries for evaluations and treatment, uh, Olympians, uh, all kinds of high performers. So it was, I realized this is the pinnacle of what this can be. And I'm not happy here either. And so I left that also and just started doing it all online. You started to act. So just to back up for a second, because I'm, I'm really curious about this. You know, I, I got started in a similar way. You know, I started working at the front desk of a health club when I was really young. Similar, similar ideas. I didn't go the personal training route. I went more the sales route and the mm-hmm. business route, but similar ideas. Now, when you get into chiropractic school, um, are you then, so then you then graduate from school and started working at your dad's clinic. Is that what happened? That was your first job as an actual chiropractor or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. And then at what point did you get introduced to CrossFit and then decide to open up a gym? Because where do those parallels occur between being a chiropractor and then CrossFit? Watching you and saying, these these people move like idiots. (laughs) You must mean everybody else but me. Exactly. Exactly. No, you know what? I I remember the um the Annie Thor's daughter snatch. Right? Like from the 09 games? Yes. Yeah. So we were we had a, a group at our at our at our school that we called the meathead round table. It was all the people who were personal trainers before they came to chiropractic school. And we just, we would have dinner, a potluck dinner every, every week. And we would talk about fitness. And one of the guys in our group named Chris Stepien and another guy named Corey Duval had found CrossFit and they were loving it. And I was like, I would watch people move. And I'm like, this isn't, this isn't quality fitness. This is just people flailing around. And it was the early days of pushing the margins of what people could do. So it was reasonable. It would look that way. Yeah. There, I, there's some videos I look back on, like, and it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Well, but, but look, everything is when it starts. Yeah. And, and so, and so then I, um, I graduated school, went into clinic with my dad, didn't love it, set off on my own. And I ended up finding myself treating patients out of Dennis Marshall and Jen Marshall's, uh, gym, CrossFit Garden City. Right. And I was like, which this- is still there today. Right. 
Oh yeah. 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 They, they do a great job. And I was like, this is how this can be. But these, these people are professional. They do care. There is technique. There is thought. And I don't know everything. And that was humbling and it was inspiring. And a year later I opened my own gym and that gym did really well for like six months, like the first six months that we were open. And then our next door neighbor sued us for making too much noise. We went to court. We won, but it cost us $120,000 that we didn't have. Um, and we won on Thursday, October 25th, I believe was the date. And then on Sunday night, October 29th, Hurricane Sandy came and wiped us off the map. The, the gym. The gym, my clinic, my house, everything gone. So, okay. Um, you're at the, why did you decide to start? If you're at CrossFit Garden City, right? Which is undoubtedly a, a great gym. It's still around, mm -hmm. which you know, testament of time. Why did you decide to open up your own gym if you liked that gym? You thought you could do something different. You wanted to explore entrepreneurship. What was the- I was, was yeah. So I was, I wanted the clinic, right? I mean, I had just gotten my, my degree as a, as, right. as a chiropractor. And now I wasn't treating people. The, way, the reason it didn't work out in my dad's office is because my dad and my uncle were more old school. Take an x-ray, adjust you, send you on your way. Right. I was doing soft tissue work, adding exercise and, and things along these lines. So I didn't fit in their business model. Um, and I went on my own and I was doing it at Garden City. This is great, but there's nowhere to open a clinic here at the time. They were in a very small space. So, and I didn't want to make that drive every day. So I opened a gym that was a mile from my house and had a clinic attached to it. So when you talk about old school chiropractic, and I, I think this is a great topic to discuss and I want to get it to Hurricane Sandy, everything, of course, but when it comes to old school, uh, chiropractic. So as I grew up, uh, my mom would see a chiropractor. We actually end uh, over the years, we actually leased out uh, space to a chiropractor at one of our locations. We've leased out space to massage therapists. We've leased out spaces to different people over the years. And I saw a chiropractor. And I saw deep tissue. Now, I got a lot of value from deep tissue work, and I got some value from chiropractic for sure. But I found that from my experience, a lot of chiropractors gravitate towards adjustment, and they, they don't either, they don't seem to like doing the other type of tissue work. Um, is that common in chiropractor or is that just my, uh, background? I mean, it's, where it's, does, where's that gap? Where's that, you know I mean? How do they work together? It's common. Uh, chiropractic and CrossFit have very similar upsides and downsides. <clears throat> the upside is that everybody can do the same minimum amount of thing. <clears throat> the downside is everyone has the freedom to do it however they want. And so I found oh, myself, <laughs> I found yeah, myself I like tra it. traveling around and telling people who are on the airplane next to me, they're like, oh, where are you traveling? Oh, to, to see a client. What do you do? I'm a chiropractor. Oh, I'm like, not like that though. And then I'm like, I got to stop telling people what I'm not. And I got to start thinking about how I tell people what I am and what I do. And it led to just describing what I do for the people I was going to visit. And then it became, that's how I would talk to the next person who wanted to work with us. I remember when um, Dusty Highland reached out about having me help Noah Olson back in like, I don't know what year that was, but he says to me, you know, who else do you work with? And I told him who else I work with. He said, how does a chiropractor do this? And I was like, I, I'm not a chiropractor. I do these things. Okay. And then Noah became a client. What, what the reason I kept on matriculating into different parts of the career is that I kept on running into problems that I needed to solve. And the solution took me out of what I was doing before. Right. So when I was a chiropractor and people were flying in to see me in the office, I wasn't going to spend 15 minutes with them. 
I needed to do something more significant. It would be a two hour evaluation, three days in a row, evaluation, treatment, exercise, send them on their way, write a program for them while they were gone. This is before there was a true coach or anything like that. It was Google sheets. Um, and word got out fairly quickly that there was, I had a partner at the time. There were these two guys in the clinic in Long Island seeing all these CrossFit athletes from around the world and coaches started asking about what it was. So we hosted a seminar that I thought nobody would show up to. We hosted seminars for a year, iterating on the process of the seminar, 14 different versions. We finally got to a good one and I put out on Instagram, we're doing an application process, you know, apply if you want. Uh, We're only going to accept people who are a good fit. And that was somewhat true. It was really, if only eight people apply, I can say there were only eight good applications in safe face. Right. Um, I woke up in the morning to 120 applications from around the world and we only had room for 60 people. So I accepted 60 of them and we had 60 people from 22 different States and five different countries descend on our gym for two days to learn about what we were doing. We're on our way. This was pre Sandy. This was post Sandy. This is 17. This is April 2017. Yeah. So going back to pre Sandy, um, you had a partner in that particular location. I've had many partners that I've done wrong. You know, the, we've, we've done the wrong business relationship with over and over and over again. I can talk about that until I'm blue in yeah. the face. Well, <laughs> so when you navigate from being in old school chiropractic, um, I, I hate to even use that term, but just, you know, the, what a lot of people think about when it comes to chiropractic is, you know, crack the neck, crack the, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, or adjust and then move on 15, 20 minutes done. I found the more modern approach is obviously, you know, Graston, deep tissue work. Uh, there's so much more that a that a, a clinic can provide than just adjustments, adjustments mm-hmm. a piece, right? So you go out and you create your own um, clinic. Was that one with a partner, or did you do that on your on your own? The one I was in the, City. I was in the clinic on my own, and we rented a building that was 2,700 square feet. Okay. The clinic took up about half of it and the other half was a CrossFit gym. But now I was going to be seeing patients all day. So I couldn't spend the time running the CrossFit gym. And frankly, I didn't know how to run a CrossFit gym. My friend had been running a CrossFit gym in Pennsylvania. He didn't have the business acumen that I had, which was not very much at all. I thought I had it, but I didn't. And I didn't have the CrossFit, the time or the experience inside of CrossFit that he had. So I recruited him back to New York to run the clinic, to, to run the gym with me while I ran the clinic. And then you guys are in there for six months. And obviously the, the noise violation or noise complaint is a really big deal in our industry. And, you know, I, I've gone through it personally. I, obviously you have as well. Um, looking back on that particular situation, um, where did you go wrong to have to go to litigate this? I mean, what, what, what steps would you have taken differently? Regardless if you want or not, you still had to pay a bunch of money. It was paying the ass, you know? Yeah. Never would have opened that location. You know, the, the, the thing is we opened a CrossFit gym in a retail space that shared a sheetrock wall and a floating wood floor with an extra one or what, what was next Uh, door financial advisor. Oh yeah. Could you imagine you're getting your financial advisor? Boom. (laughs) I, I don't have to imagine it because I heard it in court. I heard the, I heard the audio in court. Uh, the only, frankly, the only reason that we won is because he lied a bunch on the stand and we were able to point it out. I'm like, you don't, you didn't have to lie. You could have just played the tape and said, it's untenable, your honor and left the room and we would have been screwed. And so did to, to actually get to the court 
is a pretty far step from when oh, you yeah. first get these complaints. So I'm curious on how that process went because, and then how, how did it also work with your, with your partner? Because, you know, for, for those who haven't gone through this process before and, and getting sued is not, is not a fun thing at all, but to actually have it go all the way to where you're either, you know, where you're actually in front of a judge. I mean, that's, there's a lot of steps that go up before that. So how did you guys, how did it get so bad? You actually got to that. Um, and then how is the partnership relationship? The person who was suing us had no interest in any kind of a, oh. a reasonable settlement. I, I immediately went to him and said, look, you're open from nine o'clock to five o'clock. Those are your stated hours. We, the only time during your schedule that we drop weights is from nine to nine 30 when the eight 30 class is, is going on. Um, we can just take it out of that. Right. And he was like, no, I won't be happy unless you have to close and move. And there was no discussion to be had. So we tried everything and it was just, we're going to court. He thought he had a really good case. He probably did, uh, but we won. And so going back on that, you know, what we've done in the past is we've gone to these buildings and done like sound tests and drop barbells and all that kind of stuff. But I imagine it was difficult for you to probably get out of your lease, even if you wanted to. Is that what the, the big challenge was? No, the big challenge was where are we going to go? I had no money. Like we were, you know, we were, we, we raised money to open the gym. We weren't profitable on the debt yet. So where were we going to go? How were we going to start all over again? Like we found that place. It wasn't even for rent. I knocked on a door. And when we moved to the new location that we, we ended up moving into after hurricane Sandy, uh, which ended our lease, which was great. Um, you know, I, that wasn't for rent either. I just went and knocked on somebody's door and said, would you ever rent this space? So real estate was at a premium here. It was not easy to come by. And we, I couldn't afford to not be in business for a few months while we moved. And so you guys, you guys litigated right before Sandy. We litigation started in May of 2000. Was that 2011? No, 2012 and ended. The final decision came down October 25th, 2012. And then Sandy came like four days later. Wow. And so talk me through with Sandy, just like, cause this also becomes super personal, right? Because you're not only, obviously your family, your friends, you're all there. This, this natural disaster comes up that just, I mean, it just rocks the world or rocks the U S mm -hmm. et cetera. And you guys don't only get impacted on a business front, but also you said your home was impacted too. So what was all that process like? And then how did you guys kind of rebuild yeah, my wife and I got to move back into my parents' basement with her dog. That's that's Woo! for, for hey, nine months. <clears throat> nine months. The, yeah. Okay. So so that was that was uh, an experience in itself. But I I will say that I didn't see it at the time, but it really was a blessing because what I learned from Hurricane Sandy uh, was I needed to be more resilient than just I'm open from this time to this time. I needed to offer more value than just what we could do inside of the walls of the business. And I didn't want to be chained to something that was so easily manipulated by the weather. And, you know, Sandy was an extreme version, but when it snows, people don't come into the clinic. When it rains, you go from having 25 visits on the schedule that day to having nine. And if you do the math on that, you lose a thousand dollars plus that day. That's not, I didn't, I never liked that. And so Sandy, I remember I was on a walk one day with my dog and I was thinking about the name of my clinic at the time was Thrive Long Beach Chiropractic. The gym was CrossFit King of the Beach. I'm like, how do we put these things under one name? How do we, how do we build one brand? CrossFit King I, of the Beach. All right. 
I get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's when it that's when it became uh, Active Life. That's when Active Life became the name of the clinic. I I couldn't convince my business partner to name the gym Active Life at the time, so we got to be CrossFit King of Island Park, which you may recognize. You competed against our team at the CrossFit Games two years in a row, but uh, I was not on that team. But that that you know, so that was that was the evolution of okay, I'm I'm going to be bigger than just what this thing is. And I started running an event. And we had thousands of people come out to compete at our not CrossFit CrossFit event on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., right here on the beach in New York, in Manhattan at the 69th Regiment Armory. And the the biggest one we ever did were like 1,400 people, and I lost $26,000. And I So didn't... let's talk about that for a second. How do you go from being a chiropractor, physical therapist, uh, having a, you know, that to then getting into these events, because it's funny, I was just on the phone a minute ago with uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders at my kid's school. And mm -hmm. it was an entrepreneurship talk. And one of the kids asked me, um, well, Jason, you diversified your revenue streams. How many revenue streams is too many revenue streams? And I was like, oh, very interesting question. So I guess my question to you would be, uh, your, your inner core competency, all of a sudden these events to me, just as an outsider, seemed to fall outside of your core competency at the time. How'd you get into those? And then losing your shirt, I'm sure, was a learning experience. Yeah, it was dumb. I was young. And, and the answer to that question to the 7th, 8th, ninth grader or 6th, 7th, 8th is two is too many until one is working. You know, like... <laughs> right. There you go. The, but, but, that was much more eloquent than my answer to them, but it was the same idea. Yeah. Well, so so, so um, something that I've learned along the way is that there are, there are really four versions of freedom that, that I believe you can earn and you have to earn them in order. And the first one is freedom of purpose and relationships. So who are you working for? Who are you working with? And what are you doing for them? That has to happen first. If I had thought about that, I couldn't have started the event. I didn't even have that yet. I didn't know who I was helping, how I was helping them, any of that. Then comes freedom of time of money. I wasn't making enough money to do something else, right? I wasn't making enough money from the original purpose to do the next purpose. Right. Then comes freedom of time, which means that there's the structure in place that you're not one phone call away from doing whatever the next thing is. I didn't, I certainly didn't have that. I was working 5.30 in the morning until 9.15 at night. And then the last freedom is freedom of contribution. When you can start to give things back in a really meaningful way, that's not like, stretching you too thin. I was trying to do all four at the same time. And so I ran the event because I wanted to do something that wouldn't, wouldn't be damaged by a hurricane, right? It was, it was that simple. Like I saw events, I knew I could put something together. We had a good media guy and like, we could do this. Um, and I did the back of the napkin math, like we'll be profitable. Right. But then you know, we weren't even with, even with thousands of athletes showing up because it wasn't a digital event. We weren't getting big sponsorships. It wasn't that kind of a thing. That wasn't the interest of it. The other side of it was I didn't like running something that made me money when the only way I could get paid is if a bunch of other people volunteered. I yeah. didn't, I didn't like that. You know, it's really, uh, this is by the way, those four items you, you, you spoke about, I've never heard that before. That's a great, uh, I'll have to put that up in bullet points. I like that a lot. Um, which I'm glad I, I captured from this conversation. And then I, I guess, you know, it's really interesting the way events work. And from the outside, people look and how much of it becomes where you need to check your ego too, because, you know, it's you're out there, you're putting on this big event. People are looking at you as like you're crushing it. 
but in reality, it's, 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 it's not that way. Um, you know, I think in our business over the years, right. Evaluating what's actually going well, not like perceived or not like allowing like my ego, like if there's a location, I'll give you an example. When COVID hit, we had a location, we closed it. Right. And you got to sometimes fall on the sword and say, Hey, that wasn't a good location. COVID hit and we got to just check our ego. So how, how does that process work for you? Because I imagine at the time you're being looked at as the king of, what was it? King of the beach or whatever. Beach, and yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, talk me the, through that. You're right. It, it was, the first thing is, instead of asking myself, do I know how to do this? And can I do this really well? And can I repeat it? I asked myself, what could I do to make money? Which is the wrong question. And, and the answer was, oh, if we put this many people in an event and charge this much money per person who comes, how do we lose money? Just like everyone who starts a gym starts. Rent is X. This many members pays rent. Everything after that is profit. We all know that's not true, but we all know many people started their gym that way. That's right. And and I've the pendulum for me has swung way too far either way, Jason. Like it, it was the... I have my ego on overdrive when I'm running these events. I'm the man. Everyone thinks I'm cool. It's great. To at, when when Active Life first got going, we started to build out these template programs, and we called them bulletproof programs, where people could get joint health support from anywhere in the world, and on a template. But it was a monthly subscription of thirty nine dollars. And I remember one month we got to like sixty thousand dollars in recurring revenue on that, and the margin on that was like ninety something percent because right. it's make it and it goes. Great, great. And then I looked at usage and most people weren't using it. They were just buying it and paying the monthly fee. And so despite the fact that it was doing $60,000 a month, most of which was profit, I decided to kill it and, and just not make that money because I didn't feel good about the way I was making that money. It didn't align with the purpose. So I've been on both sides of it. So talk me about the purpose. So you guys start Active Life to bridge this gap between uh, you know, basically healthcare and, um, movement, right? and mm -hmm. fitness. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're creating this. So you come out of Sandy, you have these events, obviously, you know, whatnot. Now you, you, you set up a clinic again, is that correct? So you come out of Sandy and you set up a new clinic. So I'll, I'll give you the, the simple version. Yes. New clinic, new gym, all that kind of stuff. And, and partner changeover, all that, all that fun stuff. That's not fun at all. Well, let's talk about partner just before we talk okay. about the rest of it. Like you, you seem to have had, how many partners have you had in your career? <sighs> One, two, three, four, four. And out of the four partnerships you've had, have any of them at a grand scale? I mean, yes, I imagine each one of them has been successful for you because of something you've learned. Okay. Aside from learning, I mean, just purely from a financial, like that was a good relationship. Did any of them work out for you? One. Okay. One. Yeah. Um, the first one was with a good friend of mine who I'm no longer friends with. Oh, you know, it, it, it's, he's a good person and we just were, neither one of us had the business maturity or the relationship maturity to understand how to balance everything that was going on. The second one, um, just helped me run the event and he was a great guy. We still, we're still friendly. It just didn't work out financially. Got it. The third one, um, I guess two of them I could say were successful because the third one was my partner in the clinic when I finally brought a partner in to help me grow the clinic. And I ended up selling the clinic and the gym to him in exchange for the opportunity to pursue the online thing. So that technically worked. And I had a partner in the online thing that wasn't him who I just recently bought out over the last year.
And so that worked. When you look at these different partnerships, including the first one, did you have like formal agreements set up with them? Did you yep. guys, it, you did. Yeah. Yes. So you kind of at least had that business acronym. And then, I mean, so what's a, what would be like for someone who's looking to maybe open up a brick and mortar, open up a digital business, looking up to open up whatever, right? What type of attributes do you look for in a partner that you take on for these different things? Someone who has the opposite attributes of you. And what that means is they might not be someone you like very much, but they're very good at what they do that you're not, that you don't enjoy doing. The most important thing that I would say about finding a partner is that you, you're over communicating on the vision because you're going to be taking chances on things. You're going to be doing certain things that are going to require sacrifice to pursue a vision that you both need to share. And I'll give you an example. Yeah. One of the reasons why my last partnership didn't, or the one, bef the one with my, my partner in clinic, uh, didn't work out the way that perhaps it could have. Cause I think he's one of the smarter people I've ever come across. I have a lot of respect for him. He was seeing most of the patients in the clinic. Most of the, like he was better at seeing patients. Patients liked him more. He's a more likable person <laughs> than I am, frankly, uh, especially then. I was doing a really good job of getting attention for our business that was growing online, slowly, but growing online. I was the one who was helping us attract the elite athletes who were requiring us to go to the CrossFit games and make friends with all of these people and be in the warm-up area treating people all hours of the day. Um, we never really got together and discussed what the vision was going to be as that other thing grew, the online thing started to grow. And so when I would take steps towards growing the online thing, it would require him to shoulder more of the load in the clinic. And because I wasn't clear with him about what I was trying to do and how it was going to benefit both of us, resentment grew and it's reasonable that it would grow. And so one of the reasons that I believe we ended up splitting is because there was no clear path to where we were trying to go together. It was, he wanted to run a successful clinic and gym. I wanted to run a big empire. And we never, we never mutually agreed to that. That's, it's almost like when you have an owner who like a, one of the owners starts coaching and they're, they're coaching prerequisite. Okay. I'm going to coach 20 hours a week. And so, you know, the expectation is one of the owners is going to be coaching 20 hours a week or, or doing PT 20 hours a week, et cetera. And then one of those owners wants to kind of, you know, not be on the floor as much and go focus on other things. But then the company needs to then step up to pay more people to take on those hours. I totally get what you're saying. That's really interesting about with your partnership about that shared vision. And that vision might, I guess, adjust over time. But if you don't communicate from the get-go about what that is in the first place, it's probably an issue. So I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I am. Um, I want to talk more about active life and I want to talk about, so you have this exposure to these elite athletes, but you also obviously have been working with the general public for a long time, of course. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about movement, one of the things I, I wrote, wrote down for myself is like, when you think about movements, what movements do you see the biggest issues with in people and solutions to those that people might not think about? And I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of shift this into something this morning I was working with, um, so I was working with a professional jujitsu athlete and he has very difficult time on one of his shoulders, just being able to even get any form of stability overhead. And it's really interesting. He's world-class somewhere. He has a hard time holding a 35 pound dumbbell overhead in a good position. Then I get him on the reverse hyper and his low back just burns out doing 
10 reps. I mean, and, and so it's, it's interesting because these elite athletes could have such deficiencies in certain areas. So I, I wanted to ask you from a macro perspective, out of all the different athletes you've seen, of all the different movements you've seen, anything stand out to you in terms of movement patterns or issues that could be avoided and simple fixes that people can do? I know that's a very broad question, but I, I had to ask it. Well, I have a, a similar experience. We were working with a, a woman who was an elite weightlifter and she could, at the time, I think she was snatching like 235 and she, she, I mean, she was a good size. Like she was a strong, I don't know the weight class, but she wasn't a tiny little thing, but yeah, that was still like a lot. 150, 180 pounds, who knows? Whatever. Something like that. But it was a yeah. lot of weight at the time, a lot of weight. Yeah. yeah. And when we tried, when we had her sit down and try to press a dumbbell overhead, she couldn't press eight pounds. Eight. So you know, it's like, well, okay. It's not surprising that your shoulder hurts. You're, you're snatching 235, clean and jerking 265, and you can't press eight pounds overhead. That's in a seated position. That's not, that's a problem. Without would, pain or, or just, she just couldn't physically can do it. Couldn't do it. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So the most, the most common reason why people are dealing with aches and pains that we see beyond just traditional overuse is they don't they either don't have the range of motion that they're trying to train in with with power and speed or they don't have balance across the joint so for example in crossfitters the most common thing that we're seeing is shoulder pain and we're seeing shoulder pain because everything that they're doing is big ranges of motion and everything that they do that requires um most of their force is pulling their shoulder blade down, right? So think about how many pull-ups somebody does as compared to how many high pulls, pulling the shoulder in the opposite direction they do, right? The thing everyone hates on CrossFit for is the sumo deadlift yeah, the high, sumo pull, high pull. Yeah, right? for sure. But no one minds kipping pull-ups. But now, so the difference there is we do a lot of reps moving the shoulder in one direction and not many reps moving the shoulder in the opposite direction. And so people get really good at one, their shoulder blade sits in a position ready to do one thing. But when you ask it to do the other, it's unsuccessful. And there's a really simple, I'll give you a really simple ratio for your listeners to try. If you weigh 200 pounds and you can do 10 strict pull-ups, we want you to be able to take 67 pounds, one third of your body weight and do 10 strict single arm high pulls with a dumbbell, a kettlebell, whatever have you in each arm. And what you'll find is most people can't just a, a pause for a second. Mm -hmm. So someone takes a third of their body weight and mm -hmm. you're doing a high pull. Now, like, are we talking like a strict, no, no, no hip, just Correct. holding it at the hip, holding a dumbbell at your hip and pulling it right here. Exactly. And, and That's all it. of the pull-ups by the way are strict and the high pulls are strict. And by strict, what we mean is that the eccentric phase is longer than the concentric phase. That's it. Got it. Got it. So okay. we've seen, we've seen, um, the elite of the elite come in and do 25 pull-ups strict with their body weight and not be able to take one third of their body weight for a single rep in the opposite direction. And they need to be able to do 25 for that to be considered balanced. Okay. I like this. I'm going to give it a shot. So it's, you do your, your right arm, left arm, single arm, dumbbell, high pull, in comparison to strict pull-ups. Yep. That's that. I mean, th that is, that is a very oversimplified version of how okay, of we help a client, but that is one really simple example. And what happens is typically people experience some discomfort when they're doing that. Right. And they're like, Oh, this hurts. I shouldn't do this. And so what I would like to do is give them a framework for pain before they even start. 
So there are four kinds of stimulus that they can expect to have. The first one is insult. Insult is unconscious intake of stimulus. That means like you're sitting in a chair, everything feels totally fine. Yeah. You're, you're still experiencing insult. The moment that you're Wait, like- insult, like I was thinking like insulting. Yeah. But, okay, got it. It's, it's insulting to your system, but you don't feel it. So think of insult as the first one. Irritation is the moment that you feel that discomfort and you decide to move. It would be weird if we were like, uh, you okay? Like, yeah, just changed position. Everything's fine. But irritation is when that unconscious stimulus becomes conscious or you feel it. Pain is when you have a negative emotional response to irritation. It's when you decide, I, I don't know if this is a good thing, a bad thing. I don't like it. It's bad. I'm going to stop. That's, that's an emotion. Pain is an emotion. An injury is when you decide I can't do this. So once you stop, you've experienced injury. We give people simple rules to follow that actually we see reduce people's pain fairly quickly with like, cause we can affect emotions, right? If what you're experiencing is on a scale of one to 10, a four or less, keep going. You're fine. If, of the pain. And you're, and you're referring to in specific, like quote unquote pain, like if yeah. you're is four or less. Now, how do you differentiate? I know this question comes up all the time. How do you differentiate pain in, in joint versus muscle fatigue and pain that way? We don't. Okay. Because, because again, it's people just kind of know, or so, no, someone is not going to be like, Oh my God, it's a 10 out of 10. It hurts so bad in my muscle. That's getting tired right now. Right. There's no fear associated with that. So four out of 10 or less, keep going. The next thing is if it's getting better rep to rep or staying the same rep to rep, keep going. If it's getting worse, rep to rep, stop. The next one is when you put the weight down, if you didn't have discomfort before you started, but you had discomfort while you were doing it, you put the weight down, you have no more discomfort. Good. You didn't do tissue damage. Keep going. Finally, the next day, if you don't have focal pain, which means you can take your finger and point to the spot where it hurts from yesterday, not like my whole shoulder area, you're good keep going. When we teach people those rules and explain to them that pain is an emotion, immediately people are willing to do things that previously they were afraid to do that they needed to do to get over their problem. Mm. You know, Kelly Surrett was on our show and I, I've, I've known him for many, many years. And he said that he said a quote, I think it was like pain is your body's ability telling you that the tissue or something might need uh, attention or, or I, I just butchered that. But he was saying like, if you're having some type of pain, especially we were talking about kids and just training in general and how the body can give you some type of pain and then you could work it out through deep tissue work in different areas was what he was referring to. I, I'm sorry to butcher that Kelly, if you're listening to this, but it's okay. The, the way we like to make things as simple as possible. And the idea is that pain is a negative emotion associated with irritation. That's it. So now if you understand the irritation and you can be pragmatic about it, you can control your emotions. Yep. And if you can yep. control your emotions and you're like, okay, this, what I'm feeling, I'm acknowledging is uncomfortable, but I'm not afraid that I'm doing damage. Right. And I'm not doing damage. Well, then you're going to do the thing because irritation drives adaptation. Without it, you don't get one. So Kelly said, pain is a request for change. That was what it was. So I totally butchered it before, <laughs> but I thought that was a good statement, right? Pain mm -hmm. is a request for change. So, you know, for me, I've been having like quad issues and different things. So I've been doing quad smashing and whatnot. So going back to where we were at, you, you've worked with these different athletes and I like your pain, the, the threat, the, the four um, criteria you were just discussing and talking about this idea of strict pulls versus an upright row. And I guess when you're looking at just the general pop, right? Who 
can't even do a strict pull-up, who is having like traditionally, I think a lot of people would talk about like upper thoracic pain, low back pain is probably pretty common. Um, what types of protocols have you seen successful, like for the masses who, like right now I'm at a standing desk, but I know a lot of people sit down a lot. What types of tools have you seen successful for that group just to get off the couch and start moving? I'm not talking about the elite crossfitter or even the target audience. A lot of people that listen to this who are exercising, just someone who's just getting up and starting. Go for a walk. Yeah. You know, it's, we, we, we don't need to make things complicated. And my, during, when COVID started, my parents came to me like, I want you to be careful who you hang out with. I said, why? He said, well, because we don't want you to bring COVID into the house and whatnot. And I understood it was reasonable. It was early. And I said, okay, I'll do that on one condition. And they said, what's that? And I said, the two of you have in your own power, the ability to eat better and exercise. And you're choosing not to do either. So I will do my part of avoiding the masses to mitigate your risk. If you do your part to start exercising and eating better to mitigate yours. And they agreed to it. And they've been working out three days a week since then. It started. That's awesome. It started as just walks. It didn't need to be complicated. I wasn't looking for them to, you know, hit a wad. It was just do something. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm, I put a rower in my parents' living room and that's the, you know, I figure they see it all the time. I just say, Hey, <laughs> 10 minutes a day keeps the doctor away. That's my whole theory. But anyways, back to active life. So, you know, I love talking about human movement and, and this idea of, of progressing all of us and you're trying to bridge these gaps. And so talk to us more about how active life has evolved because Obviously, we've discussed kind of how you got to this place, but what is active life at its core and what is your intention for the future of it? Love that question. Active life at its core is a solution for the individual for whom fitness nor healthcare are capable of helping. The way to think about who that person is, is you're working out around it. You're you're still modifying the same movement that you've been modifying for six months or a year. You think this is the best it's going to get. You've been told you're too old for this. You had to change the exercises that you do because that one just bothered you too much and too often. You stopped lifting heavy weights. When you go to the coach in the gym, you ask the coach for a solution and they say, no problem. We can work around that. Mm. When you, or try this stretch. And you've been doing this stretch for a year. It's not working. You've been smashing for a year. It's not working. It's the same. Then you take that same person and they go to the doctor, the physical therapist, the chiropractor, the orthopedist, whoever. And they tell them, oh, it's just the exercise. Like, you don't, you shouldn't be doing that kind of exercise or take this medication or rest or get this shot or get this surgery. The person who says, I don't want to work around it anymore, coach. And doc, I don't want medication, rest, or new activities. I want to be able to do the thing that I've always done without the aches and pains that I'm now experiencing. That's our client. We help them with a solution that that no one else is providing to them. To help them get out of pain without going to the doctor or missing the gym. That grew because we were doing it for so many people. Coaches wanted to learn how to do it. So we built a version of it that was appropriate for a coach to do within the scope of a coach. So they're not playing doctor and they're no longer helping people chase abs, ass, and ego in the gym. They're now helping people reclaim their physical freedom for a career. And then finally, I'll, I'll get to you. 
the gym owners saw the coaches doing this and in, in multiple examples, these coaches would go from making 500, 600, $1,000 a month coaching classes to generating 10 to $12,000 a month in gross revenue and keeping six to eight of it themselves. And the gym owners were like, how are my coaches who were learning this from you doing this? And so we started working with gym owners to make sure that they could create an environment that attracted that kind of client that would employ that kind of coach that would solve the problem that every other gym in your town creates. So the idea of there are four gyms in my town, in my town right here in Long Beach, there are 14 gyms in a three mile stretch. All of them create a client for the gym that we would help somebody build. Because every, every person who leaves that gym because their knee is achy, their shoulders bothering them, their low back has been an issue. They don't leave the gym and tell you I'm canceling because my knee hurts or because my shoulder hurts. They leave the gym and they tell you their schedule changed. They, you know, are, they're trying something new, what, whatever excuse they make up. The reality is it's just not that much fun anymore. And so you guys have a movement screen, right? That you guys go over with new athletes, yeah. with athletes. So talk me through the screening process. And I understand what you're saying between the, let's just say functional fitness coach and the, the physical therapist. I think that's a really, like, let's just take an overhead squat. If someone's trying to perform an overhead squat, they have poor shoulder range of motion or they have something going on. There's so much in the overhead squat. I mean, maybe that's not the mm -hmm. best example, but the, the coach is like, hey, you know, just go ahead and switch it out for front squats today, right? Mm -hmm. And the PT is like, hey, you just shouldn't be squatting at all or whatever. Yep. And the reality is the athlete wants to be able to do the overhead squat. To, yeah, they want to be able to do the overhead squat. And they want a solution to that problem. So I guess talk me through the, the, the onboarding and this, this test. What do you guys look for? So what we did, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. We had a guy on our staff in the early days who had been evaluated over and over and over again. And his overhead squat was beautiful, like textbook, beautiful. The same guy did an overhead pistol squat with 185 pounds on the bar. I watched him squat clean thruster 225 on a single leg, right? Like this, this is a strong dude with circus trick kind of mobility and, and all of that. In some of his joints, he had excruciating knee pain and excruciating low back pain. And everyone watches overhead squat and says, there's nothing wrong with it. Guy snatches 300 pounds. There's nothing wrong with it. His ankle range of motion was borderline non-existent. How is his, that possible if he, if he was able to do pistols? Great question exceptional hip range of motion and the appropriate levers. He had very short femurs. So he was able to compensate for everything he didn't have in his ankle at his hip. And his knee took a lot of the brunt of that. And his low back took a lot of the brunt. So the knee experiences was called shear force. The low back has to go into a little bit more extension than we would like it to, but it looks good to the naked eye, but he had excruciating pain in both of those places. And so, just for everybody listening who's unfamiliar with what we're talking about, the pistol squat is a single leg squat. And typically, this is just typically, uh, factors that are including your ability to be able to perform or not, yes, the levers, like how long are your femurs, your hip. But typically, from my experience, if you raise the athlete's heel, whether through an Oli shoe or a plate under, it does make a dramatic difference in your ability to get down and up. But in this particular case, uh, it sounded like... Um, it's, anyways, keep keep going. I just wanted to kind of share that. The ankle is normally a challenging spot for the pistol to even be able to do one. So I was shocked to hear that he yep. was able to do them. 
people are great compensators and the better the athlete, the better the compensator. Think about the jujitsu athlete that you're talking about as professional jujitsu athlete who can't do a GH a hyper extension on a, on a reverse hyper and the overhead, he couldn't press weight over his head. Right. How, how does that guy mangle other humans who can do those things? He compensates. So the better the athlete, the better the compensator. Our job when we teach a coach what to do is we don't think that you should have to wait until a member of your gym tells you that their knee or their low back hurts when they do an exercise to be able to predict before they start. Your knee is going to hurt when you squat, George. So I'll give you a really simple for example. There's a range of motion that we, we say is appropriate in the gym, right? We, it's arbitrary. We said it's below the hip, but the, you know the hip crease below the knee and that's the range of motion, but fine. We don't measure the ankle range of motion. We don't say that the ankle must also do this to be complete. It's just the hip as it compares to the knee. Fine. What if we knew before somebody tried to squat that they didn't have the requisite hip range of motion to do that? What if we could have them lay on the ground and very quickly just try to bring their thigh to their chest and we felt, oh, you're going to run out of space. We can't ask you to squat lower than this until we change the amount of space that you have available. What if we asked them to sit on their heels and they couldn't because their knee lacked the range of motion? We now can't ask them to squat lower. We should expect their torso to dump forward because they're protecting their knee. What if we had a member who got back pain every single time that they deadlifted and before class, we asked them to reach down with their legs straight and try to touch the floor right. and they couldn't get there. What if they got there, but they were feeling deep stretch in the bottom of their calf? That, that, that's a neurological sign. And maybe they shouldn't be deadlifting. We can do these things. I've, I've assessed athletes on video that's on YouTube in under five minutes, top to bottom. It doesn't take a long time. The thing that we wanted to do with our movement screen was make it simple enough for both the coach to understand it and communicate it. And for the member who's doing it to be able to say, I get it without having to have it be explained to them. Then the last thing is we wanted to take those movement screens and say, you don't have to do all of them to do something effective for somebody. So for example, if we're doing kipping pull-ups in the gym, lay on the ground. Can you bring your arms with your elbows straight all the way overhead such that the index finger touches the floor, right? In the same width that you would be doing pull-ups. Do you have the, to keep your midline brace or can you open up your back? You, it doesn't matter. Your bet, like if if your if your chest flies up, then it yeah. matters. But typically, that's not going to be such a big issue. Got um, it. Well, if you can't do that, why would we expect you to be able to do pull-ups without overextending your back or having shoulder pain? Right. And we can do these assessments in a snap. One of them. Imagine, imagine this. How many, how many people are listening to this? If you're running a class in the next week or day with deadlifts in it, all you need to do is have everybody stand around. Tell them with your legs extended, reach down as far as you comfortably can. They do that. You look at the room and you say, if you're experiencing any pain at all, please stand up. Somebody's going to stand up. The next thing you say is, if you are feeling a stretch in, your, in the bottom of your calves, please stand up. Someone's going to stand up. Then you say, if you're feeling stretch or discomfort in your low back, please stand up. Someone's going to stand up. Then you say, if you're not touching the floor, please stand up. Someone's going to stand up. Everybody else, you say, right now, you should be feeling something either in your hamstrings or not at all, and your fingers are touching the floor. If that's not true, please stand up. 
everybody who's left touching the ground. Those are the only people who we can be 100% sure can achieve the positions necessary to deadlift. The rest of the room has just stratified themselves into a reasonable next question. Do you experience low back pain? Does your back flame out when we do deadlifts? Do you ever get pain down your leg? You're going to be surprised how many people tell you yes to those questions. Those are the people who we need to modify that workout for that day and teach them how they can get all the way down to the floor if we know how to do it. Okay, let's we'll pause for a second there. Uh, uh, two two questions on that. First one is is that pre or post warm up? Pre. Pre because for example, I'll use myself in jujitsu, if I I sit on my knees a lot mm-hmm. and when you, when when I sit on my knees, I need to warm up my quads before I'm able to get my butt to my heels. It will not get there in the beginning. I need to warm up that position many, many times. Same thing with my toe to bar or a deadlift. I need to be doing, uh, you know, leg swings and different types of exercises to prepare my body for that. So where does that come into play? Great question. When looking at, are you safe? Because now you're saying, okay, bend down, touch down. Okay. I get it. But if I'm able to prep my athletes ahead of time to get them into that position without the pain we're talking about, does that just solve the problem? Maybe. So here's the thing. There, there, there's no, there's no rule that's hard and fast. Right. We've, had, we've had people who can't reach the ground who feel stretching all, and they still deadlift, right? Sure. It, it, it's not a, if you can't do this, we're treating you with bubble wrap. That's not how this works. What you're describing. I don't know a lot about your, you know, physiology. It could be that you have athletically induced stiffness, right? You've done so much squatting, so much strength developing your legs that you need to create some movement before you can achieve those positions. All that tells me is Jason has less reserve than somebody who can get there cold. Mm. It doesn't mean you don't do it. It means Jason has less reserve. Did, when Jason came to the gym today, did he show up 30 seconds before class started running in from a business meeting and he's like breezing through the warm up because he's not focused? That's the day that Jason gets hurt, right? Because we know that he needs to get that warm up and to do that movement. The other side of it is, um, like I, I've worked with the world's strongest man competitor. He couldn't get into any position unless he warmed up for a copious amount of time. Oh yeah. Sports adaptations don't apply to general populations. And, and, and we need to be aware that we, no one competes in sport for the health of it. They compete in sport for, for a myriad of reasons. None of them are, I want to be healthier. So there are different rules for competing than there are for doing something in the gym that makes your life better. And so speaking of which, so you have a class that comes in, just giving a practical idea, you know, and and I think a deadlift is a really good example because at times, uh, whether you're an athlete or a coach listening, there are athletes and coaches who have a difficult time getting to the bottom of a deadlift with a barbell without allowing their lower back to round out. They have a difficult Mm -hmm. time. Their hamstrings are tight. I'm raising my hand and it pulls on the low back. So a solution I found, right, is you could raise up the deadlift. Obviously, you could decrease the load, but you could put it on plates and you could raise up that position. So is that an example or am I actually just feeding into the problem? So I guess what I'm saying is, would you like to see these athletes and coaches go to that step where you say, hey, today we're not going to be able to get in the position we're looking for. I'm going to go ahead and put you on this higher up position and I'm going to provide you these tools to get you improved flexibility or, or am I completely off base with what I'm sharing? You're, right now? you're, you're right on it. Not every coach wants to go all the way to what we do. Not every gym 
who wants to do what we do has all of their coaches on board for it. What happens is some coaches understand the movement assessment and they can say, okay, you're going to lift from a little bit of an elevated position today with plates underneath the barbell. Great. That could be the end of it for them. We worked with um, one of one of a really good CrossFit gym, um, formerly CrossFit. I don't know if they reaffiliated or not, but um, Trident CrossFit down in Alexandria, Virginia with Andrea Seward and Chris Smith. Yeah. Great, great, great. Like yeah, the good, best good people. people. Yeah. They brought us out twice for seminars. They, they, they shut the gym down and they had us out to teach their staff and two other gyms at the same time, privately, all of the assessments. One of their staff members was a guy named Josh who couldn't come to the day that we were doing it. They don't have much interest in doing personal training in their gyms, at least at the time they didn't. And we only had room for 24 people in the seminar and they had more than eight coaches and there were three gyms participating. So Josh couldn't come. I got an email from Andrea on Thursday the week after the seminar, we did Saturday, Sunday, that in their staff meeting, they went over exactly the example that we just discussed, you and I, with the deadlift and the bumper plates and the can you touch the floor. And she was sharing an email to me from one of her members to her saying, I just want to let you know how amazing Coach Josh is. Coach Josh evaluated my range of motion before we deadlifted in class today. And he changed the position of the bar and the height of the bar. And it was the first time in five years of working out at gyms that I've not had back pain after deadlifts, your coach, Josh, just extended my ability to work out. I'm getting the chills thinking about it. He wasn't yeah, even able to I, attend. It was simple enough for them to go over it in a staff meeting as the focus of the week. And it had the impact of a member sending her an email calling out how great a coach was. That, 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 that's, that's, that's layer it. one. The next layer is uh, many coaches come to us and say, how do I fix that? And the first decision that we have to make is, is it reasonable to expect that you can? And the second thing is to teach them how to do it if it is. So where do you draw the line between being a coach and being a doctor? ADLs versus ADIs. So a doctor's responsibility is to help people restore their ADLs, activities of daily living, right? Um, what that means is, can you wash yourself? Can you go walking for five minutes? Can you drive your car? Can you sleep through the night? Can you cook? All of these kinds of things. Um, a coach shouldn't be helping people do that. It's, it's, it's a bit outside of their scope. The coach is, I want to be able to do these activities that discomfort or range of motion issues are prohibiting me from doing. A simple way to think about it is if they went to the physical therapist and told them very well what was going on, would the physical therapist take them on as a patient? Not, not the physical therapist who has experienced coaching. The physical therapist that you think about when you think about physical therapist, the person in the khakis with the tucked in collared shirt and the belt and the clipboard. Yeah. Is right. that, would that person say, oh, you only get back pain when you deadlift 300 pounds? Yeah, come on in. We'll fix that. If the answer is no, it, it falls into the scope of a coach. And now the question is how much of what gets done is within the, the coach's scope. So I'll give you an example there. Coaches shouldn't diagnose. You don't tell somebody, I think you might have a torn labrum. I think your hamstring's a little bit stiff. I think that you might have some meniscus issue here. That's not the job of the coach. The coach's job is to report on findings that they, that they get through an assessment. So when we evaluated your ability to reach toward the floor, you were a bit limited there. When you tried to sit onto your heels, you were a bit limited there. So it's reasonable to expect that these movements are going to be limiting for you. Now, when we looked at your strength, we found that you had this lack of balance. 
when we looked at your motor control, we found that you struggled in this area. So what we're going to do is not focus on the diagnosis. We're going to focus on you need length here, you need strength here, and you need control here. We're just going to build those. And through building those, hopefully your pain goes away. And most of the time it does. So when you, you have an active life coach and they want to explore your product, what does that process look like to go from, you know, we're talking about an assessment to then practically supporting these people along their journey to get better and improve. I understand what you're saying, the difference between the the doctor and, and, and the, um, and the coach, mm-hmm. I actually like your analogy. Like, Hey, if you go to a physical therapist, you're like, Hey man, I, I'm not, I'm going to have a tough time deadlifting 315. They're going to be like, bro, what are you, what are you even doing here? Like, mm-hmm. like I, I think that's a good um, analogy. I'm sure there's some legal components in there that you just have to be careful of, but mm-hmm. talking about it from a practical application, if you're a coach out there and you want to explore what active life is doing. So active life from, from my understanding, again, as we dive deeper into this, you guys are doing a better job than, than what I've seen about trying to teach coaches who are maybe teaching classes to then start doing more supplemental or, or additional one-on-one work with athletes in the gym to solve a particular problem. In this Mm -hmm. case, you know, range of motion in the depth. I know we're kind of beating that over the head, but you get what I'm saying. What does it look like for a coach to go from what, what are you teaching them to go from assessment to actually improving that individual? So the first thing that's important to talk about there is the incentive to do it. Because a lot, a, it, it's not easy. It's simple. It's not easy. And and most coach certifications are read the textbook, take the test, or come to the weekend seminar. Hmm. Ours is 13 months long. It's 13 months of continuous education where there are videos and assignments the coaches need to do. They get an assigned personal mentor from our staff whose job it is to make sure that they're understanding the content. They get access to subject matter experts on our staff who are going to teach them, this is how you sell. This is how you market. This is how you manage your schedule. This is how you have this conversation with this person. This is how you set your vision. Um, And the gym owners is the same. They get their own mentor and then they get those subject matter experts. And when gyms work with us, their coaches get their set and then the gym owners get their set. So we collaborate everything into the same. Um, The way that the coach goes from, the reason why I said the incentive is important is nobody would go to medical school if doctors made 19 bucks an hour. Medical schools would be out of business if doctors made 19 bucks an hour. And the argument that I've heard all the time is coaches can't do this. Coaches can't do this. Coaches can't do this. And an example that a doctor actually gave on my podcast one time about what he was teaching people to do is if you stood outside of a Walmart with a seven iron and a golf ball and you asked a hundred people in a row to hit the golf ball from point A to, you know, within 20 yards of that hole, 150 yards away. No one's doing it. One in every 30, 40 people, maybe. But if everyone who walked through that door was on the PGA tour, it's likely that everyone is going to be able to do it. So it's not that coaches can't do it. It's the coaches who aren't trained to do it, can't do it. And the training takes a significant amount of effort. So in order to put that effort in, there should be an upside of financial return on the other side. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and the same is true for gym owners. It's easier to run, it's easier to think about running a group model where you get as many people as you can, you help them as best you can, and you make a surplus on what's left over afterwards. 
right? You have 200 people paying $200 and make $40,000 a month. As long as rent, payroll, all that kind of stuff amounts to less than 32, 33,000, you're probably doing an okay job. That's, that's the general premise of running a group model. The problem that we've seen with that over and over and over again is the coaches aren't incentivized to be great. They're not incentivized to be there long-term. They're not incentivized to give it all of their focus and all of their effort because they can't make enough money to retire from it one day. And so you have the unique advantage of having other things that these coaches can do to create careers within NC fit. A gym who doesn't have all those opportunities is facing, how do I keep, how do I get a great staff member? How do I keep a great staff member? And, and they're up against a rock in a hard place because it's not going to happen coaching group class. But can it happen? So let's just say you do more PT. Yes. You, you, you transition. Let's just say you're, you're, let's just say you're a coach. You're like, all right, I'm getting paid 30 bucks an hour to teach class. All right, now I'm going to pivot to active life model. I'm going to get paid 80 bucks an hour. Let's just 100 bucks an hour, right? But at some point, you're always being compensated on the time that you're actually working. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Come on. Hey, so, you know, I'm so a business I, guy. I'm a business I had, guy. I, just, I, had, I, want... I had this conversation with people in your business today. The, the, <laughs> thing, the, the thing is this. There needs to be an ascension model for anybody in any role, right? You're a gym owner right now. I promise you, I know you, and you're thinking about what else you could do to make money. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's human nature to think about what else could I be doing? You know what it's like. I know what it's like. The ball bounces and you're like, flashlight. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> like you see something shiny, you want to go get it. What we do with coaches in a gym environment is, Ascend them in such a way that at first, yes, you're selling your time. You're exchanging your time for money, personal training, group classes. The next step is, okay, not everybody who's buying personal training wants or needs personal training long-term. We believe personal training should be used to develop competence and confidence. After that, if you have somebody that you tell still needs you, you built a dependency model and you're not helping that person. If they say that they want you anyway, even though they don't need you, that's different. But so the next step is, can you write programs for this person and have them do the workouts on their own and check in with you on a regular basis? So the next step for coaches in the gym that we would work with is they go from just coaching group to coaching group and personal training to coaching group, personal training, and program design. And then what happens is they, they ultimately want to move away from the group because it's the lowest paying amount, unless if we create a system in the gym who's all bought in where that's a part of the prerequisite to do this other stuff and a salary structure starts to build, but now they get really good at the program design stuff. Okay. Well, they're going to get tired of that too. So what's next? Your job as the business owner is to continue to make sure that new business is coming in and then you need middle management. This person's now going to train the other staff members on how to do what they've done really well. And you just, you grow and you grow and you grow. If, if, if that's part of the, yeah, if that's the plan, right. Right. There, there's only a ceiling if the gym owner sets the ceiling on the possibilities for the gym. Right. And at that point, this person's built their book of business, whatever they can go pivot to doing other things. I, yeah, I think the, the, the individual program design, I like what you said, PT, uh, competence and confidence. I like that a lot. And it shouldn't become this, um, would you say like we're, uh, basically a dependency. Yeah. We're basically there just you know, signing up so they can have a conversation. You're, mm -hmm. you're a therapist. Huh? Um, for a gym owner out there who's looking to pivot their model from more of a group class to this more-ish individual base, it's a big, it's a big uh, culture shift. And 
some gyms are going to have an easier time of doing it than others because of the amount of staff, et cetera. But if the gym owner isn't bought in, doesn't like to do PT, they're like, dude, the vibe isn't right. I'm not interested. I like it when there's 15, 20 people in a class, music's bumping, vibes are right. How do you convince them that that offering PT is a good way to go? I don't. I'm not interested in doing that. What, what, what we're interested is we really want to bridge the gap between fitness and healthcare. And in order to do that, a gym owner needs to be bought in on the entire process to do that. So I'll give you, I'll give you a real world example. There's a, a gold gym that we work with and, and credit to them up in Newburgh, New York. Okay. When we started working with this gold gym in August of last year, they were doing about $17,000 a month in, in personal training. I have permission to share these numbers. Um, the average gold does about $12,500 a month. So they were already above average in February. They did $67,374 in personal training. That's a big difference. They were yeah, the number huge. one, they, you know, we don't have official numbers yet, but it's likely they were the number one personal training revenue department in the world for gold's gym. That doesn't happen. If the gym owner doesn't turn around and say, yeah, we're all in on building out this system. The reason, the reason why we know that to be true is other gyms have gone to him and said, what did you do? Like, can, can you give me like a, a tip? And he's like, yeah, I'll give you a tip. We have a wall where all of our trainers are on it. And on the wall, there's a picture of them, their unique belief in fitness and a QR code that you can scan to book an assessment with them. Gym owners are like, that's genius. We're going to put right. that That's the next gym. level. Yeah. QR code, I'm in. Yeah. Right. So he tells me about it. I'm like, Don, it's not going to work for them. He's like, why not? I said, well, because the reason it worked for you is they scan a QR code and then a coach gets notified. What happens next? Your coaches have a process. Your coach knows what to ask them. Your coach knows what to tell them to do. Your coach knows how to pre-frame the appointment that they're coming to. Your coach knows how to execute the appointment that they're coming to. It's going to be consistent no matter which coach they come to, no matter what time of day it is and you know, how many they've done that day. And your coach knows how to have the conversation of, this is what we found. Here's how I believe I can help you. If I believe I can help you, I would love for you to work with me. Is that something you would like to do? Their coaches don't. The other thing is your coaches are prepared to do it because we set up a financial structure for them. Whereas they are incentivized, legitimately incentivized to sell and service personal training sessions. Their coaches are not. It only works if all of the dominoes are in place. And when a gym owner, we've had gym owners in the past who've been like, look, I just, I want, I want to be able to create careers for our coaches. Yeah, that's important to me, but not at the expense of throwing down every day, having fun and, you know, just, just being a kick-ass cool gym. And I'm like, well, we're not your, right. we're not, we're not your best partner. I hear you. Well, dude, I, I, I really appreciate the background that you've given on active life and, and the, the Sandy situation, definitely starting from scratch again. And I think that's a really good lesson for any business owner is that, you know, my dad would always say like, he came from Iran and he, he saw some stuff coming from Iran. He always say, Jason, they can never take away your education. They can take away everything from you, but they can't take away your education. And you know, I think education obviously comes from school, but also comes from life and work experience, et cetera. And you're a good example of someone who got hit, nailed, and then boom, is able to rebuild. And I think a lot of gym owners right now 
are feeling that similar structure with COVID and what the impacts it had on them. Not the same, but similar. And um, so I hope they thrive just like you have too, man. I, I really appreciate your time, your insight and everything that you shared with us today. I thought you had a lot of really great tangible takeaways for athletes and for coaches. Um, for someone who's interested, whether they're an athlete or a gym owner, a coach, whoever, in, in more about you, more about um, what you're providing, where, where should they go and what should they do? It's what I should have typed on the screen at Dr. Sean Pastuch on Instagram. Uh, it's, you can put it in. I, I don't know if you have show notes, you can put it in, but at D R S E A N P A S T U C H. And I can guide you to whichever account you need to be guided to within our business. It's the simplest way to go. And if I can, can I add one thing to what you, you said? Can add whatever you want. Yes. There's going to be show notes. When you, when you were on uh, my show recently, you said something that was profound and that was that, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Right. You were talking about like, you can always go back to, well, it wasn't as bad as this. Yeah. And, and for me, that was hurricane Sandy. You know, you lose your, your gym, your clinic, your house, and the $120,000 on the loss that you just won in the same week. It's pretty brutal. And when COVID hit, um, I feel like that was the Sandy experience allowed me to be uniquely qualified when COVID hit to just run fast and tell people like, I got you. Here's what we're going to do. And the reason I'm telling you this is because the gym owners out there who just went through it, it was a gift. You don't necessarily know it was a gift yet. You might've ended up having to close your gym and you're like, there's no way closing my gym was a gift. Right. It was you just haven't had the opportunity to manifest it yet. You'll have an opportunity later in your life where you'd be like, man, this wasn't as bad as that. And I can draw on that to, to get through this. hundred percent, man. I agree fully with that. And I think that the time is now I'm very bullish on brick and mortar. You guys know that I think brick and mortar gyms uh, are going to about to thrive right now, at least here in the Bay area, we're starting to see it again. Um, you know, yeah, Sean, I, I just, I really appreciate all your insight. And, um, dude, I got to go try that. Uh, I got to go try the strict pull-up and upright row. I'm going to give that a shot. I'll have to let you know how it goes. But um, mm -hmm. no kipping. No kipping. But thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, I'll make sure to add in uh, all the different links in the show notes. And, uh, Sean, I hope you have a great day, brother. Mm -hmm.